Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And today, uh, John, we're delighted to have uh, join us uh, one of our Senior Litigation Council colleagues here at NCLA, Russ Ryan. Russ, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, uh, I think we're going to cover a couple topics uh, with you this morning, but the one that we wanted to start with uh, has to do with a complaint that you filed uh, earlier this month against the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. And before anyone falls asleep, <laughs> maybe we should start calling it peekaboo because that gets people's attention just right there. That's, that's how you pronounce that acronym in, uh, inside the Beltway anyway. Uh, but, but tell us about, about this complaint uh, that you filed in the Northern District of Texas and, and why anybody should care about the PCAOB. What's going on with, with their uh, administrative adjudication processes and prosecutorial processes? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this case. Um, the PCAOB was created by Congress in 2002 as part of Sarbanes-Oxley. And the whole purpose was... This is the post-Enron law. Correct, uh, which was passed, how shall we say, speedily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the purpose, the whole purpose Helter was... Helter-skelter even, you yeah, might say. <laughs> uh, that's my, my recollection. Um, the whole purpose was to create a new type of regulator that could be as far away from political accountability as imaginable. So it's it was formed as a private nonprofit corporation. Congress specifically said it is not part of the government. Uh, the SEC commissioners appoint the board, the five board members. So there's no presidential involvement in their appointment. Um, but what they do is essentially um, prosecute accountants and accounting firms for violations of their own rules or the securities laws. And thereby they're clearly exercising fairly draconian executive power, uh, not much different than the way the SEC did before Sarbanes-Oxley and still does. Um, but ironically, the, the board can impose penalties far exceeding anything the SEC can. And for that matter, uh, penalties that exceed a lot of criminal cases. Um, and yet... And there's no supervision by any government official who is appointed by the president or directly accountable no to real, the president? Yeah, no real-time enforcement of the uh, investigative and disciplinary process. By contrast, the SEC does provide uh, a, a key gatekeeper function when the board adopts rules. None of their rules can become effective or bind a single person unless and until the SEC 
approves that rule through uh, public rulemaking. So there's some supervision on the rulemaking side, but less so on the enforcement or adjudication side. Right. So that's the crux of the distinction that this case is based on, I think, that when the board investigates accountants and later disciplines them, the SEC is not involved at all. It's done by basically private citizens who are employed by the board. But there's a jury trial, right? Of course. <laughs> no? No, no, no jury. You're being facetious, I I'm am. sure. Yeah. Due process of, of law? Not, no. Is there is there due process of no, law? No, there's... Uh, impartial it, adjudicator. Surely we have an, an impartial yeah. adjudicator. No? Yeah, I, I'm sure you've talked before about the, the due process and fairness deficiencies of agency adjudication in general. But sure. the PCAOB adjudication system makes... The takes, SEC in-house courts look like uh, the the model of due process. Yeah, PCAOB takes the cake from what I've from what I've seen. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and this yeah. all happens in secret too. It does, um, and that's part of Sarbanes Oxley too. Now, to be fair, that was session made to the accounting profession, which of course does not want the public to know that they're being investigated. Or yeah, because they might be found not guilty, right? Right. So and it, it's they save them from reputational harm. Um, the cases do become public when they, if they result in a final settlement or a board decision that gets appealed to the SEC. Um, but when the when the case is final or gets the SEC, typically it does become public. But before then, unlike agency cases, which are you know. Complaint is public. The decision is public. Um, we don't know, for example, if there have been any PCAOB targets who succeed successfully defended themselves along the way hmm. before they had to appeal to the SEC. Um, those decisions are hidden from public view, which is not only a, a First Amendment concern, but if you're defending an accountant in one of these secret proceedings, you don't have access to the yeah, precedent. It, it deprives you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, only the prosecutors do, though. And so right, does the right. hearing officer. Yeah. So it's um, that's so just it's one a, of the things we've we're, we've also included. Sounds one sided. Um, objections to the funding of the PCAOB. Mm -hmm. um, it does not. It's not funded through appropriation from Congress. In fact, Congress has little or nothing to do with how much money they their budget has or how they spend it. It's Basically, what they do is Sarbanes-Oxley authorize them to what I call tax, you know, uh, impose taxes on public companies and broker dealers. Um, they they use this euphemism called accounting support fee, hmm. um, but it's in effect the board decides how much money they want and then they decide what taxes they have to impose to get that money. But but your law uh, lawsuit isn't against, or, I mean, is not within the PCAOB. You've sued the PCAOB in federal district court. So what's that all about? Correct. Yes. Um, basically, our argument is we, sh our clients should not need to go through this clearly unconstitutional machinery, which takes typically, if he were to litigate the whole case, appeal it to the SEC, and then appeal it to a court, it could take five or six years. Um, and again, that's, it would, for the most of that time, it would be secret. Um, 
One interesting thing about the complaint is we've sued under a pseudonym of John Doe because we think it's not, it wouldn't be fair to require him to identify himself when Sarbanes-Oxley says his identity should be protected unless and until the case is, you know, the, the, the proceeding is over and it results in a sanction or he appeals it to the SEC. So, and and so, what are you arguing in this uh, in this in this case? You're 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 taking issue with this appropriations clause violation, the lack of of a jury trial, and and just the, the sort of systematic bias uh, that's uh, that's inherent in these adjudications. That's most of it, and we're also objecting to the notion that um, that private citizens can constitutionally be empowered to wield substantial executive power without meaningful data, you know, meaningful real-time supervision by at least a principal officer of the U.S. government. Um, the fact that the only time the SEC gets involved in these cases is the very rare case where someone perseveres through the entire PCAOB process and then appeals to the SEC the SEC basically plays the role of appellate court. Um, but by then, you know, all the constitutional damage is done and the SEC really can't do much about it other than sure. overrule the PCAOB's merits decision. Well, and you're not the first one to notice how highly unusual the PCAOB is and all of these, all these things. In fact, you point out that the Supreme Court has called it an unprecedented extra constitutional stew, or at least one justice uh, has, has deemed yeah, in it. In fairness, that I was just now Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit. Ah, okay. All right. All right. Well, um, hopefully he but, has not changed his views. But yeah, this is sort of the next step in the, you know, the Free Enterprise Fund case, which dealt only with the appointments and removal of the PCAOB, um, the latter of which the court found unconstitutional and essentially fixed by blue penciling the second level of removal protection. But um, the court did not address the issues that we're raising here. And I think it's, it's past time for yeah, 20 years you think is enough. (laughs) Well, the the problem with um, the problem with this is normally the the PCAOB and the SEC would say, Oh no, you got to wait. You got to go through the whole process, the whole gauntlet, uh, it may take years, so be it. Uh, and then you can get your normal appellate review. Uh, but that's just not practical. They, there's only two litigants in the first 20 years of the PCAOB's existence that made it all the way to a federal court that way. Wow. Out of 400 enforcement targets that have been punished already. So What's that? I think that's less than two percent. It's well, that's one percent. Two out of four hundred. Yeah, that's like a half a percent. I think. Yeah. Um, You know, it's just not realistic to expect someone to persevere that long. These are expensive to defend, Um, and generally speaking, once you get invest, certainly charged, sometimes even just investigated by the PCAOB, you need to tell your your employer about it or sure. a prospective employer. I think people in fairness think they need to do that. Um, 
And that's the end of your career. Yeah. Well, and that's the end of the time we have to talk about that today. But thank you, Russ, for, for being with us. And, and good luck. And John Doe, VPC AOP, will be back uh, for, with more of with Russ right after this. Static, and we're still here with Russ Ryan, and we have a uh, an issue um, that's occurred that isn't a case or anything, but it kind of shows how the administrative state works to um, bait and switch, and 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 basically just um, uh, interfere with people's plans for no uh, ascertainable reason. So, Russ, tell us about the predict markets. What are they, and why are they in trouble? <laughs> predict it. Um, so you're right. We, we don't have a case here right now. There is a pending case. It's in the Fifth Circuit right now. And basically what happened is th this is a market that was developed to allow traders to invest in contracts that essentially predict the outcome of future elections and other significant political events. So in 2014, the organizers of this market um, created a nonprofit um, and sought permission from the CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading uh, Commission, um, to operate the market. And they would control, they have jurisdiction over, this is a commodity, it's a commodity of, of or it's the futures trading part of it, I guess. Yeah, huh? I think the, the market would not, the predicted market probably wouldn't admit it, but uh, there's a, at least a, a likelihood that the, the CFTC would certainly say that these are something like swap contracts. And so they fall what, in CFTC. What's a swap contract? <laughs> okay, that's a bad be, question. You're getting a little beyond but my here's, expertise here's here. The point of it is, is I, Brexit's coming, right? So I'm, I want to vote on whether Brexit passes or not. And I put some money down saying Brexit will pass 55%, right? Or something like this. So you do it like a, like a sports betting thing? Uh, it's, it's sort of a binary type of contract. Okay. Um, so the, the market, for example, has something Brexit will pass. By, by a date certain. By a date certain. And, and a, a trader can buy either yes or no, basically. Um, and uh, they, the, the price of the contract at any given time is based on supply and demand, like who's on, on either side. Fluctuates. Right. And when the event comes to fruition, if your contract is correct in predicting it, you get a dollar. And if you're incorrect, you get nothing. Um, so the value of these contracts on either side will fluctuate. For example, if... Um, if the likelihood is if if the conven if the consensus is it's sixty percent likely, then in order to buy that side contract, you'd have to pay sixty cents a contract. And and you said this was set up as a nonprofit. And what was the point of this? Was a research? Um, yeah, I guess this type of information, just tracking 
how people are when they really have skin in the game, although it's not much, right? Um, how they actually predict, you know, it, it's apparently of some value to political scientists, polling experts, gaming theory experts, and and others as an academic. Right. And so, and these are apparently small sums. You can't bet your shirt or something like that. Yeah. There's uh, the maximum you can put on any contract is $850. And they also limit the number of people who can participate in any given mark. They call markets, you know, predictive market, which is 5,000, only 5,000 people can. So this doesn't see, so what happened? (laughs) So they they built this market. They spent uh, somewhere between five and ten million dollars building it. They've got like, and they checked with the CFTC before they did that. Yeah, this was uh, in 2014. They went to the CFTC. They said, if we operate this market in this manner, A, B, C, D, um, please assure us that you won't refer us for enforcement action for not registering. So that's a staff level request. And what's Call registering? Them, tell tell the audience what registering is. Why do you have to register? What you would that? register as a like a some kind of exchange with okay. the CFTC because you're the one that's you know the intermediary with these contracts and Got running it. it. Um, so this is a no action type of letter, just like other agencies do. Uh, staff at the CFTC issued a letter saying, if you do it this way, the way you've promised to do it, we will not take it, you know, we will not refer it for enforcement. Um, so they operate this market for eight, I guess it's about eight years now. And last summer, I guess this, the same CFTC staffer who'd signed the 2014 letter issued a second letter that said, well, we don't think you're operating it the way you promised. And so we're withdrawing our 2014 letter saying you could do this. And by the way, even if some of your contracts are being operated in the way you promised, you got to shut those down too. And you better do it by February 15th at midnight or something like that. So how much time did they give them? Um, It looks like, Somewhere around five, six months. Um, but but the problem but, is that the contracts post right exactly. Right. Well, that's what I'm getting at right. here. How the, do you how the do biggest you, market, you've got to breach yeah. your contract and you're in huge trouble? Yeah, the biggest markets are undoubtedly who's going to be the presidential nominees of the respective uh, parties and who's going to win the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Um, obviously, those contracts will not spot you know the the event doesn't take place for a few years so if they're required to shut this thing down on february 15th they're going to have to unwind all these contracts i don't think there's any precedent uh, for how they would actually do that would they basically pay people based on what the percentages you know what the price is that day or do you just give everybody their money back, like a rescission or something like that? I, I think but traditionally just... Tony came around, right? And said, you, have, you, have, you have failed in uh, in your bookie, so, in being the bookie. So in terms of in terms of the litigation, predicted and some people associated uh, sued the CFTC in the Western District of Texas. I think late last summer, asked for a preliminary injunction, and. For whatever reason, the district court 
still has not ruled on it. So in December or January, they just leapfrogged to the Fifth Circuit and asked for an injunction pending appeal or in the alternative mandamus. And the Fifth Circuit uh, a week or so ago um, denied a motion to dismiss the appeal that was filed by the CFTC. And I'm not familiar with this term, maybe you appellate lawyers are, um, carried with the case, the mm -hmm. motion for an injunction and the alternative motion for mandamus and set it down for expedited briefing. Um, I think Predicted's brief is due today, I think. Might have even been yesterday, I haven't checked. Um, government's brief is due next week and the oral argument is scheduled for February 8th. Got it. And so that's so uh, presumably the Fifth Circuit is preserving its ability to um, stop this before February 15th. Which... Correct. Yeah, that, that's the uh, reasonable inference from, from the <laughs> schedule that was set. Uh, and uh, does this happen a lot? I mean, what, what's going on here that they that they allow it to happen? And then there, there's two things that strike me. The one is what is the does the law say these aren't allowed? I mean, if I go to read the law now, does it say this isn't allowed? With the, the market itself? Yeah. Uh, not that it's not allowed. I think the CFT would argue that it's not allowed unless and until you register with the CFTC right. or get an official, what they call an exemption from the, the CFT, CFTC commissioners. Okay. So, and that takes time and money, I take it? Uh Ordinarily, that takes a lot more money um, than a no action letter. And if you do register, that brings with it all the burdens of being a registered entity. Okay. Um, and um, I, I haven't tried to figure out why they did it. You know, they went the no action route, but that's normally the way, right. the cheapest and most efficient way to get permission to do something that's arguably they, they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Right. right. You think it's fine. And then you go to them and say, look, we think this is fine. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get yeah, in trouble. Yeah. And so they make up their their minds at the agency. Well, we're not going to get you in trouble now. And then they change their minds eight years later. The law hasn't changed, right? No. Okay. So Congress hasn't done anything. All these people have invested these millions of dollars. They've gotten people outside their group to come and bet on these markets. Maybe they have political science looking at this information and Maybe somebody's got their thesis already for like one of these contracts. It's going to come down afterwards, right? Oh, yeah. I'm going to do. Yeah. Meanwhile, maybe somebody in the government doesn't want futures markets to exist on whether or not Joe Biden is going to be the nominee uh, of the Democrat Party uh, in 2024. I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> I did. So, so, all right. So, so there's all there's all those countries. And then they just give them six months to wind it up. That is the thing that really strikes me as unbelievable. Yeah, I, I think predicted in their papers basically says, look, it's one thing to tell us don't it, don't start any more contracts, right. but it's another thing to say unwind the ones that are out there with you know real money on the line. Um, you know, once once this issue became public, the market is all kind of it's messed up right now because people. Are, some people are just trying to get out because right. they think it's going to get shut down. And um, I don't think wh whatever those markets are showing right now, I think people would say it's not reliable. Um, but, you know, 
that's these these markets i think can sometimes be far more reliable predictors than traditional than asking people right yeah because the the idea behind it is that your revealed press preference is what you'll put money on whereas you'll tell a post post pollster any darn thing right um so uh yeah so i i do look at those i find them very interesting i've never i have no skin in the game but uh we'll we'll have to look at what the fifth circuit does about this because you know put due process put what the law says this bait and switch thank you very much russ we uh are out of time once again but thank you for joining us